We continue in our series in this glorious gospel-centered book. We come this morning to chapter 1, and particularly focusing on verses 18 to 25, but I'll read all the way from 18 to 32. This is God's Word. Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Amen. This is God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray again and ask him to help us as we study his word. Father, I ask that the meditations of all of our hearts, that the words that come out of my mouth might be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Would you speak to us now? Would you teach us your truth? Would you humble us? Would you prepare our hearts to receive, either for the first time or for the thousandth time, to receive and to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as he is offered in the gospel. In his name we pray. Amen. When we were growing up, we had a lot of Shel Silverstein poetry in our house. Maybe you know Shel Silverstein, and several of his poems have stuck with me over the years, and uh, this one is entitled Smart. Listen. My dad gave me one dollar bill because I'm his smartest son. And I swapped it for two shiny quarters because two is more than one. And then I took the quarters and traded them to Lou for three dimes. I guess he don't know that three is more than two. Just then along came old blind Bates. And just because he can't see, he gave me four nickels for my three dimes. And four is more than three. I took the nickels to Hiram Combs down at the seed feed store, and the fool gave me five pennies for them, and five is more than four. 
Then I went and showed my dad, and he got red in the cheeks and closed his eyes and shook his head, too proud of me to speak. And we can laugh at this boy who thought he was so wise, all the while exchanging what was more valuable for what was less, and thus incurring his father's displeasure. But the truth that Paul is teaching us here in this text this morning, of which this poem is an amazing illustration, is nothing to laugh at. It's not even anything to smile at. You see, Paul here is telling us that since the fall of Adam, every single one of us, by nature, has been just like that little boy in Shel Silverstein's poem. In our self-professed wisdom, we have been fools, rejecting and exchanging the plain truth of the glorious God for deceptive idols. We have walked in the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of our lust. We have thus deserved and earned and experienced not merely the displeasure of God, the exasperation of God, but the holy wrath and anger of God. Here in this passage, Paul is beginning what he'll be talking about through chapter 3, verse 20. He is declaring the universal sinfulness of all mankind, and he's doing it. You notice the little word for that begins the sentence there in verse 18. He's doing this in order to explain why has God revealed his righteousness? Why is it given as an unearned, undeserved, unmerited gift to those who believe? Just as a jeweler would take that brilliant diamond and put it on the blackest of backgrounds to to highlight the brilliance of the diamond. So Paul here takes the gospel of grace in our Lord Jesus Christ and he sets it against the pitch black darkness of our souls that he might highlight the graciousness of the gospel in the face of our guilt. By nature, Paul is saying, all of us outside of Jesus Christ All of us are condemned. None of us are righteous. All of us are outside of God's mercy and favor in a saving way. None of us are good. We're all under the wrath and condemnation of God. Every single one of us needs the salvation that's found only in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this indictment of all humanity, both Gentiles and Jews, though perhaps Paul is speaking particularly to Gentiles in this section, this indictment is preparing us to hear that gospel of grace. He's telling us the righteousness that God provides in the gospel, it meets the need that arises from the wrath of God that is revealed every single day and particularly on the last day. You know, we often throw that question around, are you saved? And that question could be answered with a question, saved from what? And Paul's answer here is, are you saved from the wrath of God? And so this morning, I want us to think more closely of how Paul lays out this indictment against all humanity. First, Paul's going to tell us everybody knows God. Second, he's going to say everybody rejects the knowledge of God. And third, he's going to tell us, therefore, everyone deserves the wrath of God. Let's look at these three things together. First, everyone knows God. Like we did last week, let's sort of start in the inside of Paul's argument and work our way out. The fundamental point that Paul wants to lay out in this text is that every single person that has been born 
knows God. Look at verse 19. Paul says, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. And then again, you see in verse 21, Paul says, they knew God. Now, you may scratch your heads because typically in the Bible, we learn that fallen men and women and boys and girls who are outside of Jesus Christ do not know God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul tells us the world and its wisdom did not know God. Oftentimes, Paul will describe unbelievers, those who don't trust in Jesus, as those who don't know God. And yet these verses are teaching us that in another sense, in another sense, even outside of Christ, every single person does know God. Yes, they don't know God savingly, but they do know God because he has made himself known to them. Now, what does every person know of God and how has he made it known to us? Well, Paul goes on in verse 20 to tell us, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Paul is saying that through the creation, all around us, we have seen what is unseen. We see the invisible God through his visible creation. We know his existence. We know his eternity. We know his power. We know his divine perfections in nature. As Christian mentioned earlier in the service, this creation of God is part of what the church is called general revelation. God's continuous making known of himself to everyone everywhere through natural phenomena. When we look at the heavens, as David did there in Psalm 19 or in Psalm 8, we must cry out with David, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, of course, God's eternity and, and power and existence are just a sample of what we know from the creation the rest of Scripture tells us that we also know God's wisdom. We know God's goodness. We know his righteousness. You remember what Paul tells the Greeks at, at Lystra in Acts 14. He says, God did not leave himself without witness. He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Sounds a lot like Paul was reading Psalm 145 that says this, The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hands, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. Paul is telling us here, everyone knows God. Whether we see the destructive force of a hurricane or a tornado, whether we see the delicate beauty of a butterfly's wing or a peacock's tail, whether we see the, uh, the intricate order and design and pattern on a, on a snake or uh, on a zebra, whether we peer into a microscope or a telescope, right? whether we gaze into the heavens or look around us on the earth or look underneath the oceans, whether we look at animate creatures like ants or elephants or inanimate, inanimate creation like rocks and waterfalls and mountains and all the different things God has created, it is impossible, Paul is saying, not to see the power and the glory and the wisdom and the goodness of God through what he has made. Right, we don't have the time. I don't have the knowledge to, to unpack all of the marvels of the universe. Right? Some of you know them better than I, and you've read about them, the, the, the way that the universe is finely tuned 
Right? All the physical constants like gravity are exactly what they need to be. If gravity was just a little bit greater or a little bit less, right, the world as we know it would not exist. We consider the cell microscopic in size, over 37 trillion cells in our bodies. Every little nucleus of each cell containing our personal DNA, every little mitochondria and ribosome doing exactly what God has called it to do, working with exquisite precision. We think about the eyeball. We think about something called the, the bacterial flagellum, which propels these little microscopic organisms irreducibly complex. These things could not have just uh, evolved slowly by slight changes over time. They wouldn't work if that were the case. God has created. He's a designer, a maker, an architect. And he has made this world to show forth his divine power and wisdom. And it's not just a handful of things. If you're a fan of art, you know that the great artist Rembrandt would draw himself into some of his pictures, not his self-portraits, but other paintings, that he would draw himself into the painting. But Paul is telling us that God's fingerprints are everywhere, on everything. Indeed, he's telling us in this passage that there is no such thing as an atheist. Everyone knows that there is a God. Everyone knows on some level Something about this God. We all know enough, Paul tells us, to leave us without excuse. Verse 20. No one can say, eh, there's just not enough evidence for me to believe in God. No, the evidence confronts us every single day. And we know him. We know him. But what do we do with this knowledge? That's the second part of Paul's argument here. Everyone knows God, but everyone rejects the knowledge of God. Three times in this passage, Paul tells us what we do with this knowledge. Verse 18, verses 21 and 22, and then verse 25. Look at what he writes in verse 18. By their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. We know the truth of God, Paul says, but we hate it. It disturbs us. It challenges us. It confronts us. It tells us that we are accountable to this God who has created us. And so like a totalitarian state, we seek to hold the truth back, to hold it down, to, to resist that truth that we know. We refuse to allow it to influence our thinking and our living. The way that you would step on a roach or stamp out a campfire, we come and we desire to obliterate, to stamp out the truth of God that he has revealed through creation, this truth that challenges our self-centeredness. And Paul tells us there in verse 18 that we do it by means of our ungodliness and our unrighteousness, by living according to the lust of our heart for our own selfish pleasures. Wickedness, Paul is saying, is the, the getaway vehicle for our unbelief, for our suppression of the truth. Wherever you see unbelief, you also see immorality and unrighteousness. Paul explains more deeply, doesn't he, in verses 21 and 22, and then again in verse 25. Listen, Paul writes, Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Paul tells us 
that though we know God, we, we fail to ascribe to God the glory that is due his holy name. We refuse to live for his glory or to give him the place that rightfully belongs to him in our thoughts and in our affections and in our devotion. We neglect to thank God for all the life and goodness he has lavished upon us at every moment. We become futile in our thinking and darkened in our hearts. These hearts that should know and worship God, they reason wrongly. It's impossible for the fallen mind to reason rightly about God and the world around us because that heart, that mind has been impaired by sin. This is what theologians call the noetic effects of sin. Noetic coming from that Greek word for mind, the effects of sin upon the mind. We don't interpret anything properly as we ought. Now, yes, to be sure, the mind still works, and, and it can do even things as great as getting us to the heavens, getting us to the moon, to outer space, and yet what happens when we get there? We praise and we glorify the false god of human ingenuity and creativity and technology. Wasn't it a Russian cosmonaut who went to heaven and said, hey, I've made it to, he I've made it to the heavens, I've made it to, the, to space, and guess what? God's not here. We engage in this inglorious exchange that Paul speaks of here, this foolish exchange. And we think trading, you know, a dollar for two quarters and two quarters for three nickels and three nickels for four dimes and four dimes for five pennies. That's foolish. Don't do that. But Paul tells us here in this passage that we steal glory from the creator and we trade it ungratefully for his creation. We trade the truth for a lie the invisible God who lives forever for visible idols in the form of men and animals that are already dead. We trade what is weighty and glorious and substantive for what is light and meaningless and insignificant. We reject the powerful and the eternal God who can carry us, as we saw in Isaiah 46 last week, for impotent and fleeting gods that we must carry ourselves. I think Paul has Jeremiah chapter 2 in mind. Jeremiah 2 verses 11 and 13 speaks of the exchange as the Jews had made it some 600 years earlier. Listen to what Jeremiah writes. God is speaking through him and he says, My people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The imagery is stark, isn't it? A fountain that just gushes forth water nonstop, and a cistern, a bucket, and not just any bucket, but a, a holy bucket, not holy in the sense of, of godly and, and pure, but holy in the sense of holes in it, a bucket that can't hold water. That's what our false gods are. Paul here is telling us that we have been created to worship God. We are hardwired, made in the image of God. In our very beings as creatures, we are hardwired to worship. And so when we refuse to worship God, it's not that we will worship nothing, it's that we will worship anything. Our hearts are idol factories, said John Calvin. And though our modern idols are not visible and, and made of metal and wood and stone as they were of back in the Greek and the Roman period. Yet anything that we seek life from, anything that we seek significance from, anything that we seek refuge and help from can be a God, an idol that we have set up within our hearts. 
a ruling overlord that ultimately will destroy us. Any creature of God can become a substitute for God. Our gods of sex and sports and money and power and fame and comfort and pleasure are just as false as those Greek and Roman gods that we read about perhaps in high school. They're just as demanding, just as impotent, just as disappointing, just as unsatisfying. How do we respond to this knowledge of God? Paul tells us we reject it, we suppress it, we hold it down. We want to live according to our own pleasures. We want to be God. We want to be in charge of our lives. We chuck God out the window. We walk contrary to his will. And we live for our idols rather than for the one true God. But how does God respond to us? How does God respond to our rejection and our suppression of him and of his truth, to our pride and our wickedness? What's the third thing we see here in this passage? Paul tells us everyone knows God. Everyone rejects this knowledge of God, and therefore everyone deserves the wrath of God. Look at verse 18 again. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath of God, not the most popular doctrine in the Bible, is it? It's something the world scoffs at as archaic and unenlightened, evil even. And yet it is a truth revealed in every single book of the Bible. Since Adam's rebellion in Genesis chapter 3, and not just in the pages of the Bible, But Paul tells us here the wrath of God is revealed every day and every moment. Psalm 7 verse 11 tells us that God is a righteous judge, a God who has indignation every day. And we'll see in more detail next week how God manifests his wrath and his anger, at least one particular way. But this morning I just want you to be confronted with this truth because everyone knows God yet rejects the knowledge of God. Therefore, everyone deserves the wrath of God. Now, what is the wrath of God? How do we understand that properly? Well, to be sure, we must not think of the wrath of God just as if it were the wrath of man, like the wrath of man. It's not a selfish or arbitrary or capricious thing. It's not an out-of-control fit of rage. Rather, it is God's personal and settled and unswerving anger, his righteous anger, his righteous opposition and revulsion and retribution to all that is contrary to his holiness. Now, many believe and and think, and perhaps you have had this thought as well, that because God is a God of love, therefore he cannot be a God of wrath. But we must remember that the truest opposite of love is indifference. And God cannot be indifferent to his holy will being trodden underfoot by his creatures. Because God's love is directed first and foremost toward himself and toward his own glory. God is never an idolater. Think about that. God is not an idolater. If he were to turn a blind eye toward man's rejection of his existence and his authority and his holiness, if he were to be indifferent to the fact that his glory were stolen from him and given to the creature rather than to himself, then God would not be a God worthy of our worship. God is not an idolater. God is never indifferent. God is a God of wrath precisely because he is a holy God who must punish all that is opposed to his glory. 
And therefore, Paul tells us we are without excuse. None of us can plead ignorant. None of us can claim to be undeserving of his outpoured wrath. We all stand sinful and guilty and condemned before his holiness in and of ourselves, apart from Jesus Christ. We've all done what Paul says here deserves the wrath of God. Even the person who doesn't have the Bible in his own language, even the person who's never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ deserves the wrath of God. And and again, this is something that sometimes puzzles us or confuses us or even angers us, perhaps. We think, how can the person who has never heard the gospel, how can they be held accountable? How can the pagan, right, who's, who's never had the Bible in his own language, who's never had a missionary come and, and speak to him about Jesus, how can God bring judgment against him? But of course, Paul tells us here that every single person who has ever been born into this world knows through the creation but has suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. Yes, God can and God will judge those who have never heard the gospel because it's not that he's judging them for what they don't know, but he's judging them for what they do know and reject. And Paul says everyone knows God and everyone rejects the knowledge of God. This is precisely why the gospel of Jesus Christ must go out to the nations. This is the foundation of missions, you see. Because we believe that this is true, what Paul says here in this passage, everyone is under the wrath of God now. And therefore, we are impelled, we are motivated to go bring the gospel to the lost. The gospel of a righteousness that is revealed by grace through faith, through the preaching of the word. You see, general revelation, though it's enough to leave us without excuse It is not sufficient to give us a knowledge of God and of his will unto salvation. It tells us nothing, doesn't it, of Jesus Christ. It tells us nothing about this revealed righteousness that is a gift to those who believe in Jesus. And so we engage in missions. And so we bring the gospel to the world. This is why righteousness has been revealed, Paul is saying. This is why the gospel goes forth, because the wrath of God is revealed every day. And it will be revealed on the last day against every single person who is outside of Jesus Christ. Everyone who thinks that they can please God by bringing to him their own works. You see, this text comes and slaps us across the face with the bad news of our sinfulness so that we will wake up out of this drunken, self-righteous stupor. If you had a house that was leaking at no pipe, No leaks in your house. Or if you were someone who knew how to deal with leaky pipes, then you wouldn't call a plumber, would you? And yet that is how we are. We think wrongly that our house has no leaks, or we think wrongly that we are competent to fix all the leaks in our house with the duct tape of our inherent goodness. And Paul is telling us here, you can do nothing. You've seen that tagline from Home Depot, you can do it, we can help. And Paul is saying, no, the gospel is not that. It's the exact opposite of that. You can do nothing. You stand in utter need, absolute need of help. You cannot deliver yourself from the guilt, the condemnation, the wrath of God that is coming upon you. Your only solution is found 
and the gift of righteousness in Jesus Christ from the very God under whose wrath and curse you stand. Do you believe this? Do you know this to be true? If you are not a Christian this morning, do you believe that you are under the wrath of God? Please, we plead with you. Understand that this is true about you. And if you are a Christian, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, then don't you see that Paul wants to remind you again of your sinfulness so that you might see the beauty of what Jesus has done for you. Some of you have perhaps read the book In the Sanctuary of Outcasts by Neil White. Some of you perhaps know Neil White. He lives in Oxford. Back in 1993, he was a journalist, a magazine publisher. Uh, He loved money. He loved fame. He loved it so much that when he didn't have enough money, when, when he wasn't willing to give up his reputation, he started to kite checks to move money back and forth between accounts to avoid bouncing the checks that he didn't have money to cover. He was eventually arrested and sent to prison for one year. And in God's providence, he was sent to the last leper colony in the United States down in Carville, Louisiana. And through his incredible encounters with uh, people who had lost noses and fingers and toes and legs, people who are viewed as untouchable, as contaminated and unsafe to be around, Neil White finally realized the truth about himself And he writes it like this, Finally, in a sanctuary for outcasts, I understood the truth. Surrounded by men and women who could not hide their disfigurement, I could see my own. Now, I have no idea if Neil White is a Christian, if that brought him to saving faith in Jesus, but it certainly made him see his sin. He may not have called it that, but that's what he was seeing, his disfigurement. And the question for each one of us is, have you come to the point when you have seen your disfigurement, that you are a wretch, that you are unholy compared to the holy God, that you are deserving of God's wrath apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ, apart from the righteousness revealed in the gospel? What is the church but a sanctuary of outcasts, sinners saved by grace, sinners who've gathered together filled with sin, filled with foolishness, who've gathered together, who have been gathered together by God because of no merit on our own. We come to this table together, seated around it, acknowledging our sinfulness and acknowledging the mercies of God to us in Jesus Christ. May God grant us to see, to know, to live in the light of not just the truth of the gospel, but the truth of of what necessitates the gospel the truth of the wrath of God. May God make it so. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, it is hard to see, to hear these words about your wrath, your holy anger. But Lord, we pray that our hearts would not resist and reject and suppress this truth. Oh, Lord, we ask that you would grant us eyes to see, ears to hear, Lord, convert those who have never been converted, those who have never gotten a clear glimpse of their sinfulness. And Father, would you be pleased to help us to see who we are, that we might see more clearly who Jesus is, that we might see more clearly what you have done for us in the gospel of righteousness revealed to faith. Lord, come even now and draw us to yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.